Amen. Thank you, Jeff, always. <clears throat> Sorry, guys. Ruth chapter number two. We are glad to be back. We had uh, two nephews get married. My wife's, two of my wife's brother's sons, one at the end of September, one the end of October, <clears throat> So it was really kind of a go to none or go to both. <clears throat> can't, can't pick one nephew and not go to the other one's wedding. So we went to both, two trips. Let's go ahead and stand, please. <clears throat> Ruth chapter number two, and we will read the entirety of the chapter together this morning. We, a few weeks back, began to work our way through this book, and then, of course, I've been gone some, and last uh, Sunday, the Sunday before that, we turned our attention to the Bible perspective on the situation in the Middle East, and so we've been away a little bit, but pretty familiar story, and <clears throat> I think we can come right back into it pretty quickly. Ruth chapter 2, and Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's a mighty man of wealth of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said unto Naomi, Let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn after him, in whose sight I shall find grace. And she said unto her, Go, my daughter. And she went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and her hap was to light on a part of the field belonging unto Boaz, who was of the kindred of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, Judah, and said unto the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, The Lord bless thee. Then said Boaz unto his servant that was set over the reapers, Whose damsel is this? And the servant that was set over the reapers answered and said, It is the Moabitish damsel that came back with Naomi out of the country of Moab. And she said, I pray you, let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and hath continued even from the morning until now, that she tarried a little in the house. Then said Boaz unto Ruth, Hearest thou not, my daughter? Go not to glean in another field, neither go from hence, but abide here fast by my maidens. Let thine eyes be on the field that they do reap, and go thou after them. Have I not charged the young men that they shall not touch thee? And when thou art athirst, go unto the vessels and drink of that which the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face and bowed herself to the ground and said unto him, Why have I found grace in thine eyes, that thou shouldest take knowledge of me, seeing I am a stranger? And Boaz answered and said unto her, It hath been fully showed me all that thou hast done unto thy mother-in-law since the death of thine husband, and how thou hast left thy father and thy mother and the land of thy nativity, and are come unto a people which thou knewest not heretofore. The Lord recompense thy work, and a full reward be given thee, be given thee of the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings thou art come to trust. Then she said, Let me find favor in thy sight, my Lord, for thou hast comforted me. 
Though that thou hast spoken friendly unto thine handmaid, though I be not like unto one of thine handmaids. And Boaz said unto her at mealtime, Come thou hither, and eat of the bread, and dip thy morsel in the vinegar. And she sat beside the reapers, and he reached her parched corn, and she did eat, and was sufficed, and left. And when she was risen up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and reproach her not. And let fall also some of the handfuls of purpose for her, and leave them that she may glean them, and rebuke her not. So she gleaned in the field until even, and beat out that she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. And she brought forth and gave to her that she had reserved after she was sufficed. And her mother-in-law said unto her, Where hast thou gleaned today? And where wroughtest thou? Blessed be he that did take knowledge of thee. And she showed her mother-in-law with whom she had wrought, and said, The man's name with whom I wrought today is Boaz. And Naomi said unto her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord, who hath not left off his kindness to the living and the dead. And Naomi said unto her, The man is near of kin unto us, one of our next kinsmen. And Ruth the Moabitess said, He said also, He said unto me also, Thou shalt keep fast by my young men until they have ended all my harvest. And Naomi said unto Ruth, her daughter in law, It is good, my daughter, that thou go out with his maidens, that they meet thee not in any other field. So she kept fast by the maidens of Boaz to glean unto the end of barley harvest and of wheat harvest, and dwelt with her mother in law. And we will stop there this morning. Let's pray. Father, we pray always for your help in understanding and rightly addressing your word. Help us, Lord God, to have a great respect, a great reverence for your words to us. They are life. They are the nourishment of our souls. And so please, for the sake of your name and for the sake of your word, help us to understand today what you are doing and saying and to pray this for us in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may, of course, be seated. Well, I say periodically I am not one given to creative sermon titles. And I know that sometimes the sermon title is announced in the service and I debated the appropriateness of entitling a Bible sermon as luck would have it. But the problem is that that really fits the storyline of chapter number two. It's it's not the way a Hebrew would put it, but it is certainly the way an American might put it, as luck would have it. We're familiar with the story of Ruth that occurred in the days of Judges, which is a very low point in the life of the nation of Israel spiritually, a day characterized by widespread religious apostasy and widespread anarchy, in which you could accurately characterize the nation of the people as every man doing that which is right in his own eyes. We will eventually get to that, that 
that is a judgment that cannot be extended to every individual because Boaz, for sure, does not fit that mold. And as God judged those people for their infidelity with a famine, a man by the name of Elimelech and his wife Naomi decided to move to the land of Moab, which again is totally consistent with the way we would think about life and economics. Right? There's no job in this city. You need to go to another city and find a job. And this is just the way things go. But it was a note, it was a dimension of spiritual defection. The famine was God's judgment. And this family went to enemy territory. And of course, dad died and their two sons married Moabite women. And then the sons died. And after God had lightened his hand of judgment and Naomi heard that there was food in the land, the family, or what remains of it, goes back to Bethlehem, Judah. The two daughters-in-law are given the choice, actually encouraged to return to Moab. Orpah goes and Ruth stays. And Ruth becomes something, I'm just going to again use our word for it, Ruth becomes a little bit of a celebrity in this very small village of Bethlehem, Judah. She is a foreigner. She is an alien. She is a stranger. She is a little bit of a curiosity. She is noteworthy. Everybody, it seems, in the story is aware of her and her situation. The main theme of the book, if we were to sit down and just work our way from the beginning of Ruth through the end of Ruth, Ruth is the explanation of God's provision of a redeemer. And more specifically, you probably have some note along this line in your study Bible, a kinsman redeemer, a, a redeemer who is a relative. And that, of course, and we will, I'll talk about this in a minute, that, of course, is indicative of what Jesus Christ has done for us. He is a fellow human who has redeemed us out of our deplorable situation through his gracious gift of his own self. But an undercurrent to the story of God's provision of a redeemer is the way in which God worked to provide that redeemer. Not just the fact of the Redeemer, but the way in which God brought about the Redeemer. And God used very ordinary people. There's really nothing special about Ruth or Naomi or even Boaz. And he used ordinary life situations and decisions and brought about his own purposes. We the word that we use to describe that, folks, is providence. Providence. God's seeing two things ahead of time to fulfill his purposes. It is a reminder to us, among other things, that while we are very ordinary, God is not at all ordinary. God is extraordinary. And he is capable of using normal situations and normal people to accomplish 
his purposes. One of the disadvantages we have is that we are taking one story and dividing it into any number of smaller pieces during the Sunday morning messages. And so chapter 2 has its own point and its own purpose, but it is also leading us up to the real heart and meat of the story. And I've mentioned this, folks, but the most important part of the book of Ruth is actually the genealogy at the very end. I mean, all the story that is fascinating and heartwarming and interesting, the kind of narratives that we love to read, brings us to the really critical piece, the kind of literature we don't really like to read, the genealogies. God is going to give to us David. And in order to be David, David has to have ancestors. And one of those ancestors is going to be the Moabitess Ruth. And so Ruth needs to be married and bear children. And before all of that happens, the couple need to meet. And that's what's going on in chapter number 2. It doesn't begin as a courtship. It doesn't begin through an online dating site. Boaz is not going to jewishmingle.com. I want to look at the story this morning along the, through the lens of the people that are involved in the story. The narratives are told through their characters. So let's begin, first of all, in chapter 2 and verse number 1 by noting that Boaz is an impressive man. Boaz is an impressive man. Now, now here's the thing to note, folks. Remember that we're reading a story. And we're reading the completed story. But none of the characters in the story, not Boaz, not Ruth, not Naomi, they don't know how the story's going to unfold. We're reading it historically. They're kind of living it, as we would say, in real time. Uh, I remember not not very long after 9-11, David McCullough, he's dead now. He's a historian and a writer and a very famous writer, went to the Jocelyn Museum. And I was taking classes at UNO at the time, and our class went over to listen to him make his speech. This was right after 9-11 had happened. And But one of the things that he pointed out was that our founding fathers, you know, we look back on our founding fathers in American history, but they had no idea what the end result of their actions was going to be. They didn't know if they would succeed in establishing a country or whether they would die and be executed as rebels against the British government. They didn't know. And Ruth doesn't know, and Boaz doesn't know, and Naomi doesn't know. And I say all of that, folks, to just point out to you that one of the things that is essential for you to remember when you're reading the book of Ruth is that Ruth doesn't know anything about Boaz. Boaz is introduced here in chapter 2 and verse number 1. He's about to become a major player. And we're getting the introduction. We are meeting this character for the first time. Ruth has yet 
to meet him. Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's, a mighty man of wealth of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. He is a mighty man. This is a commendation. He is a mighty man like there were mighty men in the days of Genesis chapter 6, in verse number 4. Or Nimrod in Genesis 10.8, who began to be a mighty one in the earth. In Deuteronomy 10.17, the same word is used to describe God himself, Jehovah, mighty, powerful. And he is a mighty man of great wealth. He is an important, influential man in the land. And he happens to be related to this Elimelech, the man who is now dead, who had led his family to Moab in the time of famine, which certainly, at least in my mind, raises the question of why Elimelech chose to go to Moab when he could have gone to Boaz. But that's a curiosity and something that God has not chosen to address. Boaz is not simply an influential man. He is not simply a rich man. Boaz is a godly man. Look, if you will, at verse number 4. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said unto the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, The Lord bless thee. Now, it's possible, folks, to just dismiss that as common religious rhetoric of the day, but I think we do that to our detriment. I'll talk about this eventually, but there's some places as events between Ruth and Boaz begin to to merge. There are places in the book of Ruth where people begin to raise questions about the moral conduct of the characters. And I would just issue this caution right now. Don't allow yourself to go there. There's nothing that they do and there's nothing in the text that ever really seriously suggests that these people are anything other than ethical, godly people who are endeavoring to protect their reputation, not tarnish it. So I think that you should take, for instance, Ruth chapter 2 and verse number 4 at face value. In a world that is characterized by apostates who are doing whatever they please, there are men like Boaz who are faithful to the Lord. His godliness is truly evident a little bit later in the text, and we will see that. So he is a mighty man, folks. He is a good man. He is an influential man. He happens to be a wealthy man. But above all things, above all things, Boaz should be noted as a true man of the Lord. And we are being introduced to this man, a man who does not yet know Ruth and whom Ruth does not yet know. So the story begins by telling us about Boaz, an impressive man. Then, as the story continues in chapter 2, verses 2 through 18, we discovered that Boaz, a man impressive in his own right, is impressed by little Ruth. If you recall in chapter 1 and verse number 22, which I don't even have to turn the page in in my copy of the Bible, Ruth 1.22, So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, which returned out of the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. 
Ruth knows only one thing, folks. Jump down to verse number 2 of Ruth chapter 2. And Ruth the Moabite said unto Naomi, Let me now go into the field and glean ears of corn after him in whose sight I shall find grace. And she said unto her, Go, my daughter. Let me just make a note here about our King James Bible. Corn, corn there, we, we think of our corn, maize, kernel corn. But, but the word is just a reference to grain. Right? It's barley harvest. The, the author is not confused. We're harvesting barley in 122, and now we're harvesting corn in 2-2. No, 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 no. We're just, we're just talking about the, the basic physical properties of the stalk there of barley. So Ruth's perspective is simply this, right? It is barley harvest. We are a fairly impoverished people. We are not wealthy. We are not influential in our own right. And the only thing for me to do that is an honorable thing to do is to take the pathway that the law of Moses provides and go out into the fields and gather what I can. So she asks, let me go in the field and glean ears of corn after him in whose sight I shall find grace. And let me just take a couple of minutes. You can make note. You can try to turn to it if you want to. But, but she is behaving. She is conducting herself clearly in accordance with what the law of Moses specified in this situation, Leviticus 19.9, here's God's instruction to the farmer. When ye reap the harvest of your land, thou shalt not wholly reap the corners of thy field, neither shalt thou gather the gleanings of thy harvest. Thou shalt not glean thy vineyard, neither shalt thou gather every grape of the vineyard. Thou shalt leave them for the poor and stranger. I am the Lord your God. So God's instruction to the Jewish farmer was to leave some of the corners standing and to not go back through the field the second time. Now look, I know absolutely nothing about farming. I am a suburbanite from almost the day of my birth. But I don't think you have to be a farmer to understand that if you plant a field and it comes time to harvest, you want everything that you planted. There's, there's no value in leaving stuff laying in the field. You want everything that you planted to be picked. But God said, leave the corners, and you can't go back through the second time and get whatever may have been missed or dropped. It stays. It is, by the way, a very wise system that God puts in place, and one that most politicians are completely ignorant of which is that there are multiple reasons for poverty and the oppression of the upper class is not the only one. Some people are poor because they're lazy. And so God had no sympathy for people who were too lazy to go to somebody else's field and pick what was still standing. If, if you're that lazy in God's economy, you can just go hungry. That's the way that worked. And here those who are not lazy, but who are, for whatever reason, relatively impoverished, have the opportunity to provide sustenance. You're not going to get rich doing this. And at the risk of pointing out the political, the, the gender distinctions in, in between our world and theirs, this was clearly work that was ascribed to the women. But Ruth says, let me go out. Let me go to the field and let me see whose field I can find and I will get us something to eat. 
And Naomi says, that's a great idea, verse number two. Go, my daughter. And as luck would have it, and as luck would have it, verse number three, she ends up in the field that belongs to Boaz. The word actually here is hap in our King James Bible. She went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers and her hap. In 1 Samuel 6, 9, the word is translated with chance. It means to befall. It means to happen. It is an unexpected thing. Solomon put it this way in Ecclesiastes 2.15. Then said I in my heart, as it happeneth, as it happeneth, as it haps to the fool, so it happeneth, so it haps even to me. Why was I then more the wise? If the fool suffers the same unexpected event that I suffer, or I suffer the same unexpected event that a fool suffers, how am I wiser than a fool? As luck would have it. As luck would have it, the field that she picked was the field of the good and godly Boaz. But her luck doesn't end there because Boaz himself shows up in that particular field. Verse 4 through 7. And Boaz is very impressed with Ruth. And he tells her, will you stay in my field? You don't need to go find any other fields. You stay in my fields. And I will see to your safety in my fields. I will instruct the young men to leave you. Because, again, folks, the world is what the world is. And Ruth is a foreign woman living in a, in a land of Israel, a single woman. She is, as women and children have always been in this world, its first victims. And Ruth, and finally then, in verse number 10, asks what it is. What have I done to deserve this treatment? You're being very kind. You're being very generous to me. You're being very gracious to me. And she falls on her face and inquires as to why. And folks, this is where Boaz's godliness is most evident. This is why we want to never ascribe to this man any kind of sinister motive or conduct. What does he say? What could he say? He could say, well, you're really an attractive woman. He could say that. <clears throat> you really appeal to me. He could say that. But what he says is, <clears throat> well, let's let the text speak. Verse number 11, Boaz answered and said, It hath been fully showed unto me all that thou hast done unto thy mother-in-law. Since the death of thine husband, and, and how thou hast left thy father and thy mother and the land of thy nativity, and are come unto a people which thou knewest not heretofore, 
The Lord recompense thy work, and a full reward be given thee of the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings thou art come to trust. What is it about Ruth that captures his attention? Is it her physical beauty? No. Is it her work ethic? And she had a strong work ethic, verse number 7. No. It is her covenant faithfulness. It is her faithfulness to her mother-in-law, to her marriage vows, to her now dead father-in-law, and to her God. This is what attracts Boaz to Ruth. Folks, he's a godly man. He's a good man. And this then, in verses 14 through 18, becomes the beginning of what we would call a relationship. Having having taken care of her kind of indirectly, go back to my field, I will instruct the young man to look out for you. Now he begins to protect her and provide for her directly. Directly. He gives instructions to his workers specifically about Ruth, and he sees to it that she has a place at his table. So Boaz is an impressive man, and yet Boaz is impressed by Ruth. And that brings us then finally, folks, in verse number 18. Back to where the Bible stories always go in the book of Ruth. They always come back to Naomi. They always come back to Naomi. Naomi is impressed by God. Naomi sees this for what it is. It is not just luck. Two, three. It is not just luck. It is not just coincidence. This is the work of God. Ruth returns from Boaz's fields with an extraordinary amount of food. Far more than one would expect to gather just from gleaning the harvests with other people who are out there working furiously to pick up what has fallen on the ground or what is still remaining in the corner. You can just imagine, folks, how competitive that world could be. But Boaz has loaded her up with food. And Naomi is very curious about this in verse number 19. Where, where'd you glean? I mean, you've got you to read the, there's an, there's an exclamation point, not just a question mark in the question. Where have you been? Where have you been? Whoever took notice of you is, is worthy of blessing because here she comes with a tremendous amount of food. And it is at this point, folks, in verse number 19, if we're reading carefully, that we realize that Ruth has no clue about chapter 2 and verse number 1. Some guy named Boaz. I just went out and found basically the first field that I came to, and it was this guy, and he did these things, and he said this stuff, and... To which Naomi says, bless God. 220. Blessed be he of the Lord who hath not left off his kindness to the living and to the dead. This is the woman who not terribly long ago had said, Ruth 120, 
don't call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant anymore. Call me bitter. Call me bitter. God has dealt very bitterly with me. Now the basket is full and bless God. And in verses 21 through 23, folks, because again, we're reading a story that is going on and we are about to come to the end of this story for our purposes this morning. Ruth can see what Naomi can see what Ruth doesn't yet see. Ruth is looking at a basket full of food and a field to go and work and Naomi is going, this guy likes you. This guy likes you. And that is where the story will take up, Lord willing, next week. So here's, <clears throat> right, so, the, so there's the storyline. And, and you know the story. We could all get to that simply enough by reading it. Part of the question for the message, the purposes of the message is, in what way does this pertain to us? Does this have anything to do with our lives and with our living? And let me suggest to you that there are, several clear connections to the story of Ruth, to the story of Omaha, Nebraska, thousands of years later. The first is this, is that we all have a very vested interest in David. We all have a vested interest in David. We, of course, know that God will raise up David and make him the king and that David will become the template of the kind of kingdom that God wants. Not a kingdom that will be fulfilled by David, but a kingdom that will be filled by David's descendant, Jesus Christ. David is Ruth's descendant. Jesus is David's descendant. Psalm 1850, Great deliverance giveth he, God, to his king, and showeth mercy to his anointed, to David, and to his seed forevermore. David is, of course, a towering figure in the Bible narrative. John 7.42, Hath not the scripture said that Christ, the Messiah, cometh to the seed of David, and out of the town of Bethlehem, where David was? So God raised up David and then God made all these predictions. 2 Samuel chapter 7, one of the most important covenants in the Bible, the covenant that God made with David, that David would always have a descendant to sit upon the throne of Israel that would culminate in Jesus Christ. Paul writes of him in Romans chapter 1 in that great book about why we need to be saved and how we get saved concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. And Paul, as he is winding down his last letter to his protege, Timothy says, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. So that little genealogy there, folks, at the end of Ruth chapter number 4 is not just a lump plugged onto the end of a book like some unnecessary appendix, but it is the culmination of the book. Here is David who will become the king 
who will become the representative of the type of kingdom that God will have on earth through Christ, who is our Savior. Everybody has a vested interest in this. There is no salvation of any other kind than Jesus Christ. So all believers have an interest in David. All the world has an interest in King David. Secondly, Jesus Christ's legitimacy as king over God's people is built upon his descent from David. Now you could make the argument, and I would make the argument, that Jesus Christ as God in the flesh is worthy of all glory and honor and kingdoms, but the Bible connects the legitimacy of Christ's kingdom to his descendancy from King David. The genealogies, folks, and there are many names in the gospel genealogies, but they're pretty much consistent in this. They take us from Adam to Abraham to David to Jesus. Thirdly, in what way is this passage, this story relevant to us? Well, we all have an interest, an essential interest in David, for he is the ancestor of our Savior, Jesus Christ, whose entire kingdom is legitimized by his relationship to David. And thirdly, we all live, folks, enjoying the providence of God in our own lives. What do you suppose that Paul means when he says, we know that all things work together for good? All things work together for good. And that word work together is a word we use all the time. It's a Greek word. We use it all the time in our English language. It's the word synergy. We know that all things have synergy for good to them that love God who are to them who are the called according to his purpose. So God is providentially involved in the life of every believer, not just in the lives of super saints. God is providentially working in the lives of all his, of his people. And all of those things will be, will, he didn't say that all of them are good, All of them are being worked towards good. Towards good. Because, folks, God is determined to do good to his people. And that he will. Fourthly, the passage is relevant to us because we are called upon to put Christ first and to trust in that providence. Psalm 37.3, trust in the Lord and do good, so shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. And he shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light, and thy judgment as the noonday. That's an Old Testament account. Here's a New Testament account. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Look, folks, the world 
is constantly analyzing its behavior and its agenda on the basis of what it perceives to be the best possible outcome. What will maximize profits? What will maximize pleasure? But that is not the way we as believers are supposed to be oriented. We're supposed to be oriented to the Lord. We're supposed to be oriented with putting God and his will and his way first. Living in the confidence that all things are working together for good. To them that love God, to them that are the called according to his purpose. Folks, one of the things that really makes us different from the unbelieving world is, is really that, that kind of guiding star. What, what governs the life of a believer above all things? What is supposed to? Is the will of his master, the will of his savior, the will of Jesus Christ, the seed of David. And so we are called to be faithful to God in the situations in which we find ourselves. Ruth identified herself in chapter 2 and verse 10 and in chapter 2 and verse 13 as not as different as a stranger. Not, not superior to, she wasn't arguing in any way she was superior to Boaz, quite the opposite. You know, I'm kind of an alien, I'm an outsider here. But I am I'm going to be faithful to the Lord who called me. So although it is a very old story, folks, it has much relevance. We are, we are desperately in need of the salvation that is provided through Jesus Christ, who is the descendant of David. And he is working all things together for good. He is providentially working things out to the good of his people for his own glory. And we are called to trust that. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for the stories, how, <clears throat> how nourishing they are to us as we read of your working in the lives of your people. And may we rest confidently that you are working in our lives as well. Maybe a little easier to see reading the book of Ruth. Maybe a little easier to believe for the book of Ruth. But just as true, you are working all things together for good to those who are your people. Bless us, please. May we be oriented always towards doing that which is right to you. May we have full assurance and confidence in Christ as our Savior, his alone, his righteousness alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.